Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Business of Film. My name is Jesse Eichmann, and you're listening to a crafttruck.com podcast. Uh, this is episode number 72, and we're going to do something a little different here today. I've got no guests. It's just me. This is a solo pod. Haven't done one of these in a while, but I read an article. Uh, actually, I read the, the, the judgment, uh, the 60-page judgment that came down just recently uh, by the judge who was presiding over Tess Garretson or Terry T. Garretson, the plaintiff, versus Warner Brothers Entertainment, Katya Motion Pictures, New Line Productions, Inc. as the defendants. So I read this judgment and I was, I don't want to say I was enraged, but I was absolutely floored by the judgment. Now I've been following this case. It's a copyright case. It's a claim that Tess Garretson made. Uh, that basically suggested, uh, and I'm not, I'll get into sort of what my opinion is a little bit later, but the assertion that Tess Garretson made is that she wrote a book that formed the underlying rights that would eventually become the film that we now all know as Gravity that was written and directed by Alfonso Cuaron and I believe also written by his brother as well. So the... The motion and the issues at stake are as follows, and there's two of them, and they're and they're big ideas, and I, we need to we need to draw a little bit of a line here between these two ideas because what we're going to be talking about today is going to be on let's just say one side of the coin and not the other side of the coin. So what are the, the these the, these two sides these two these two ideas? The first is that originally Tess Garrison put in place a motion with the courts back in January suggesting that. They had a that she had a copyright claim that there was an infringement on her copyright and on her intellectual property, that being the underlying rights of her book. Uh, the second issue is whether or not she's even entitled to make that claim. Uh, it is an issue of whether or not the producer, in this case Warner Brothers of the film, had had the requirement to even uphold the initial contract that she had entered into. So there's like this barrier to entry. You can't get to the underlying rights issue. You can't get to the, you can't get to even starting to debate the factual merits of whether or not there is a copyright claim without talking first about whether or not there's even a contract to enforce. So that's what has happened here. She lost the first claim, the first copyright claim, uh, but not because she lost the copyright claim, but because that she did not prove adequately that there was actually, in fact, a contract that Warner Brothers had entered into that they would have to enforce. So then she made, the, the courts gave her the opportunity to file a second claim, an amended claim. And the amended claim was just to get over this hurdle, was just to prove that there was a corporate relationship between the companies that she had entered into her initial co- uh, contract with and the producer, Warner Brothers. Following so far? Okay, I'm going to draw a little mental picture here. I think this will help just put, these, put, the, put some of these ideas here into motion. So, uh, oh, and by the way, I've got in front of me here this this sixty page judgment that came down by the court. So if you hear some some papers flipping in the background, that's me literally looking at my my notes and my highlights on the uh, on the judgment itself. And what I'll do, in in, in fact, is I'm going to scan 
uh, a copy of this uh, that has my highlights on it. And so if you, if you wanted to kind of go through, even just look at the judgment yourself, look at the things that I highlighted, you, you can do that. Uh, I'll throw them up on the, um, on the show notes, crafttruck.com forward slash BOF72. So the companies involved here, as I mentioned at the very beginning, uh, but obviously didn't draw a picture for you, but now, I, but now I'll draw, draw the picture. Uh, think of this as like a tree. At the bottom of the tree, there's this company called Katya, K-A-T-J-A. On top of that company, there is New Line. On top of that company is Warner Brothers and Time Warner. Here's a little bit of the factual background, okay? Um, and I'm just going to go to the, uh, the relationships here between all these parties here. On January 28, 1994, Turner Broadcasting System, okay, they bought New Line and Katya. In 1996, okay, Turner was, was, was then purchased by Time Warner. And then on February 28, 2008, Time Warner purchased Warner Brothers, New Line, and Katya to consolidate. So what happened was, just from a corporate perspective, Warner Brothers, New Line, and Katya, group those all three in your mind. Warner Brothers, New Line, and Katya, okay? They were all consolidated into Time Warner, okay? So there was... Um, uh, this consolidation that happened between these companies. And it's in that consolidation that we find ourselves in this, uh, this issue that everybody is, is fighting over. The legal hurdle that, that Tess Garrison has to prove is that there is a corporate relationship here between Katya, Warner Brother, uh, between Katya and New Line, and that that legal relationship basically extends to Warner Brothers. Again, we're not talking about copyright here just yet, and we'll get into that a little bit later, but we're not talking about copyright just yet. What we're talking about is whether or not there is even that, that, that legal relationship that would require Warner Brothers to uphold the contracts that Katya and New Line entered into. Um, so, and, and that's her assertion. That, that's Tess Garrison's basic assertion, is that she's basically suggesting that Katya and New Line are basically, quote-unquote, alter egos of Warner Brothers. That is, that is to say, whatever contract that New Line and Katya entered, entered into, Warner Brothers is therefore going to have to have to uphold all that. So, the allegation itself, just so that you understand what that is, um, she's alleging that, uh, that she wrote a book. That, that book was published. She was paid a million dollars. Okay, in exchange for the motion picture rights. So she got paid a lot of money uh, back in uh, 1999. So just reading from the, the actual judgment here, it says, based on the manuscript seen by the representatives before the book was published. So she also wrote, and it's also important to note that she wrote a manuscript. She basically wrote her own screenplay to go along with the book. Uh, but based on the manuscript that was seen by the representatives before the book was even published, Katya and then New Line entered into a written contract with Garrettson on March 18, 1998. Okay, so that in that contract, that's where New Line basically bought the underlining rights. And they paid a million dollars for those rights. And the contract itself provided that if, if, and quotes here, if Katya produced the motion picture based on the book, then Garrettson would get 
a $500,000 production bonus and contingent compensation of 2.5% of the defined net profits. She'd also get a screen, uh, a separate screen credit as well. Just going to restate that. If a movie based on the book that Katya produced, Katya produced, okay, not New Line, not Warner Brothers, that Katya produced, that she would be entitled to all of this back end, okay? So, um, hope everybody's following so far. I apologize if I've spent a little bit more time than maybe you would have liked on that recap, but it's just, it's really important that those two sides of the, of the coin are understood. There's the copyright claim, and then there's a legal relationship, okay? So, here we go. Um, and this is where we get, uh, this is where it just gets uh, fun, and this is where uh, I get personally infuriated. So when a company consolidates, you would think that they acquire all of the assets, all of the underlying rights, all of the stuff that makes up that company. So when Warner Brothers uh, was consolidated into uh, Time Warner, and in that same consolidation, when Warner Brothers acquired uh, and was consolidated with New Line and Catch It, you would think that all the rights and obligations of all the contracts that Catch It entered into would then flow up the corporate ladder. That's not the case. That is, according to this judgment, that is not the case. Um, and here are just here are just some, some quotes, just just direct quotes from. Uh, uh, the CEO, Jeff Bukes, uh, on the day that the announcement was made, he says, Today it was announced that New Line Cinema will be operating as a unit of Warner Brothers. All right, that seems pretty clear. Hey, New Line's going to be part of Warner Brothers. I get that. It was also stated um, in, a, uh, in another uh, press release, uh, quote, This afternoon, Time Warner is announcing that New Line will become a unit of Warner Brothers. Okay, so two separate quotes. One was from Jeff Bukes, and the other... Uh, was from um, uh, the uh, at the time New Line's departing co-chairman, uh, Mr. Shea and, uh, and Mr. Lin. So there are quotes like that and evidence such as uh, and these are and there's a whole list of things that they that that they list and these are all the things that she lists. Uh, as being assertions to prove that there is this corporate relationship. And I want to list all these things here for you because they're just really interesting. Uh, she asserts that, and I'm going to go through them. There are a number of them here. She asserts that when a profit participant enters into a contract with New Line, the accounting statements he or she receives is from Warner Brothers Financial. Okay, that's interesting too. means that Warner Brothers is basically taking over the accounting operations of New Line. That sounds like there's a relationship there. Uh, a profit participant auditing the accounting statement would have to get in touch with a uh, staff from Warner Brothers. Sounds like there's uh, a unity of interest there, I guess you could say. The business affairs and legal executives of New Line and Katia are located at the Warner Brothers lot in Burbank. Again, these are all the things that she's trying to suggest and assert. Now, again, I'm not, I'm not falling here on one side or the other just yet. I'm going to give you my opinion at the end, but I just want you to understand all the things that she's asserting. Uh, that would that would make this connection uh, between Katya and New Line and uh, and uh, Warner Brothers slash uh, Time Warner. 
in 2011, the New Line logo, which appeared on any on screen in many New Line motion pictures, began to appear only after the viewers saw the Warner Brothers shield. Uh, so now, all of a sudden, the logos are being you know smushed together. Uh, so. Again, there's all these types of things that would suggest that there is an interest or unity of interest between these uh, between these two companies. Uh, you know, if one tries to call New Line or Katya, you know, they basically get diverted to uh, to Warner Brothers. So I guess you could call you, you could kind of group all these things into like I don't know operational efficiencies. But there was a consolidation. It's natural to think that all of these types of things, which go towards cost savings. Uh, would happen naturally in the course of a consolidation. So let's talk about the film and the development of the film. So um, following, and I'm just going to read here just a couple sentences just so you can understand some development background. Uh, Following its acquisition of the motion picture rights to the book, Katya purportedly sought to develop a film based on the book with New Line uh, and uh, Artists Production Group. Okay, so... What this is saying is that Katya acquired the book rights, okay, the underlying book rights, and then they kind of started developing it, which makes sense. You acquire the book rights, you're going to start developing it. Um, to assist with the screenplay, uh, Gerritsen then alleged that she wrote some additional scenes in which satellite debris collided with the International Space Station, destroying it and leaving the female doctor astronaut drifting in a spacesuit, searching for a way to return to Earth. That sounds a lot like gravity, doesn't it? So... What is the book about? I haven't read the book, but I've read some summaries of the book, and basically, it's set on a, the book itself was set on a space station, and there was a virus, and everybody on the space station dies, and uh, there's a lone female survivor, and it's more about what happens to this group of individuals on the space station than it is about one woman floating in space. However, it sounds like what she's suggesting is that she wrote some additional screenplay materials, quote-unquote, additional screenplay materials, to go along with the book. So in the development and adaptation of the book, she broadened, I guess, the scope of the underlying rights uh, that Katya had to include this, um, this notion that there would be this woman floating alone in space. Cool concept, right? Something someone might want to make a movie about. Hey, so... I mean, you can debate some of the the, uh, uh, development history here. I mean, she contends that she delivered these additional scenes uh, to the management group. um, uh, And she contends that that all of that kind of formed the basis, again, for the underlying rights. Uh, You know, and of course, the film does include scenes of satellite debris colliding with the space station. You know, all of this stuff, you know, becomes... It becomes, I guess, somewhat difficult to prove. And you look at the when you when you actually look at the sixty-page judgment here, it's it's interesting because they use the words like purportedly and allegedly. It's so this stuff isn't fact yet, or it's not entered into the court as fact. So while sometimes I may, you know, omit the word allegedly, all this stuff is quote unquote allegedly. But there is substantive basis here to assume and believe. From like, hey, I'm a real person standing in a real world and I'm looking at this thing and I'm thinking, okay, well, what do I make of it? Yeah, do I believe that she wrote some additional screenplay materials as part of the development process for the book? It would seem that way. I would allege that that is probably true. 
Um, <laughs> and uh, and so okay, so in two thousand and let me get the date right here because it's in um, on December seventeenth, two thousand and nine. The Quorons allegedly granted all rights in the Quoron Gravity Project to Warner Brothers. Okay, so that's 2009. Now, she believes, it's Garrison's assertion, she asserts that on information that she has, that it was sometime after 2002 that Quoron and his son, Jonas Quoron, wrote the screenplay titled Gravity, and that that screenplay featured some of the same characters and storylines as as the book. So her, her, her contention is, is that... She entered into this contract with Katya, which then got consolidated and was then was kind of a you know it was then kind of smushed in with with New Line, and that shortly thereafter in 2002, the Quorons come along, and they're basically writing a screenplay which they eventually assign to Warner Brothers. Uh, and that assignment goes to Warner Brothers and not New Line. So you got Warner Brothers making the film Gravity and not, you know, for example, New Line. Um, it should also be stated here that New Line had about 17 different companies underneath it, which is not uncommon in the film business. It's a way to shield corporate, uh, I guess, uh, corporate liability. But, like, I could list to you, I mean, they have things like New Line Film Corporation, New Line Television Corporation, New Line Film Subsidiaries Corporation, New Line, you know, New Line This Corporation. Uh, It's just, like, they probably had about 50 different companies underneath it, all of which they could use to to move rights between. And and so um, it's, it's not uncommon to think that there would be companies multitudes of different companies that would be entering into contracts with uh, with creators for film rights. The problem kind of happened when everything got smushed together. But anyways, so long story short, Quran, the Quorans come along and they write and they write their their project and then they assign those rights to Warner Brothers. Okay, so let's talk about the, the, the judgment itself and the discussion of the other judgment. Now, I could get absolutely bogged down in the legalese of this whole thing because there's just a lot of it. But I'm going to just try and sum up the, the, the basis of what happened here. There's a bunch of legal stuff that Tess Gerritsen was throwing at the court. And again, all Tess Gerritsen is trying to prove is that there is a legal relationship between the contract that she entered into with Katya and Warner Brothers corporately. Because she can't prove that there's a relationship there. There's basically no contract to enforce. Uh, and absent of a contract, you can't even enter into the discussion of copyright claim. So here, like, just, just uh, you know, some of the theories. Um, Quote-unquote, lack of cognizable legal theory or the absence of sufficient facts alleged under a you know, cognizable legal theory. Um, so, you know, we, so we, we, we talk about things that like, you know, what the, what, what the hell does that mean? Right? Like really like cognizable legal theory, the absence of facts under cognizable legal theory. I'm not a lawyer. You're not a lawyer, probably not a lawyer, but come on. Okay, here we go. So to state a breach of contract claim, a party must allege the existence of a contract. That's what I just said in English. There has to be an actual contract. There has to be 
performance under the contract. Performance means you actually did something. Uh, or an excuse for non-performance. Uh, defendant's breach. So there has to be a breach of the contract. So, i.e., Catch and New Line, Warner Brothers would to have had to have breached the contract, i.e. not paying them, uh, and resulting damages. And it would have had to have been damages as a result of breaching the contract. So if you don't have all those things, her here, absent, quote unquote, I'm going to read here, here, absent a breach by defendants, no such unpaid debt arises. So if you don't have a breach of a contract, if you don't have a contract, then there's nothing for Tess Garrison to enforce. And now we go on for about 40 different pages for all the things that are legally preventing there from being a legal relationship. This entire document, this 60-page document at the end, will prove that there is no legal relationship between Katja, New Line, and Warner Brothers. That blew my mind. It should blow your mind. Um, and one of these tests, I think, is hysterical. Um, I, 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 it's called the alter ego test, and this is the only one I really want to talk about, just just from a legal perspective, because I just I find this one nuts. Uh, the, and there's two prongs to the alter ego test, and this is the other part that I like. You know, there's, it's, it's not just one test; there's one test with two prongs. The first prong of the alter ego test, whether there is unity of interest. Remember those words we used: unity of interest and ownership, such that separate personalities of the two entities no longer exist. She's basically trying to prove that there is a unity between. Katya, New Line, and Warner Brothers. And if there's a unity, then you could suggest, hey, if they're operating as one unit, then yeah, they should they should uh, I guess enforce the contracts that they entered into. into. Uh, and Garretson identified more than 10 factors that she contends are indicative of the alter ego relationship. Remember all those things we talked about at the beginning? Things like uh, the logos and the accounting offices and the business affairs, all those things that would make you think, hey, these are the same companies, right? Well, no, apparently not. Apparently, according to the court, uh, aha, here's the wording. This is funny. Finally, although Garrettson argues that allegations of abusive control are routinely found to meet the alter ego uh, pleading requirements, so although uh, she's arguing that this alter ego stuff exists. As the preceding discussion makes clear, I've skipped over the preceding discussion, uh, the, indi- the indicia, indica, of WB's purported control of Katya and New Line that Garrison pleads are, for the most part, circumstances that are merely incidental to a typical parent-subsidiary relationship. What? What? what really? What? Re- really? Are you kidding me? I couldn't believe this. I mean, look, look, here's the deal. I'm not suggesting that <laughs> that there is, in fact, a copyright claim. But I am thinking that some lawyer dropped the ball here. And I'm suggesting she's got good lawyers. But I can't believe that. I'm like, and I'm not a lawyer. I mean, there's going to be, I'm sure there's, Tons of lawyers out there who would say, who'd say look, Jesse, this is the law. You've got to work within the confines of the law. And I, 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 I get all that. But just just step back for a minute. Dude, there was a contract. She entered into that contract with Katya. That contract, um, you know, formed part of the corporate relationship with New Line. Um, again, allegedly. Uh, th- those, those companies got subsumed and amalgamated into, into Warner Brothers. There's a contract. Let's look at the copyright claim, but no, no, we, we, we can't do that. 
And then while, and here we go, on page 50, while the courts recognize that some of the facts that Garrison has alleged are of a type that can, in an appropriate case, adequately plead, quote, unity of interest, unquote, between a parent corporation and its subsidiary, as alleged here, they do not give rise to a plausible inference that WB dictates every facet of catchy and new lines business from broad policy decisions to routine matters of day-to-day operation. I'm sipping my coffee here. If I don't drop it first, I want to kind of vomit in my mouth a little bit when I read that. Okay. I apologize for my language. To sufficiently allege a theory of alter ego, plaintiffs must provide more than labels and conclusions. And apparently that's all they, 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 they did. I mean, maybe, maybe here, and, and, and point of fact, the, the court is giving them an opportunity to amend uh, their, their second amendment. So, uh, not the second amendment in the Constitution, but the, their, this second amendment thing. Uh, so, yeah, so the court's saying, hey, you lost this round, but you can come back and try us again. Um, as a result, the court concludes that Garrison has failed adequately to allege a unity uh, uh, to allege a unity of interest sufficient to satisfy the first prong of California's alter ego test. That was the first prong of the test. We even talked about the second prong of the test. That was just the first prong of the test. Um, now, I'm just going to see if this second. Uh, the, the, in addition to alleging facts that show unity of interest. Uh, Garrison must also plead facts demonstrating that an inequitable result will follow if an alter ego finding is not made. Ah, blah, blah, blah. Okay, you get the gist, right? You see what's going on here. Um, And then, finally here, we're we're getting to the end here, Uh, and then I'll kind of sum all this up and and, and wrap this thing up. Uh, Although Garrison alleges that Catch and New Line knew or should have known that the film was based on the book, again, that's Garrison's allegation, she pleads fact supporting these conclusions. She does not, for example, plead how or when Katya and New Line's rights and obligations under the contract and guarantee were transferred to Warner Brothers, nor when Warner Brothers first became, and I think this is the critical word, aware of the book. Man. Okay, so think about that for just a sec. Warner Brothers has to actually, in fact, be aware of the contract? Like, that's something that has to happen? I'm sure they've got thousands of contracts. I'm sure New Line and, and, and Katya had thousands of contracts. But what the court is just saying here is that, well, wait a second, even though you got a contract, you got to be, quote unquote, aware of that contract. Because if you're not aware of that contract, ignorance is bliss. Again, really? Come on. I hope there's some lawyers out here who will, will chime in. By the way, if, if there's somebody out there who's listening to this and is taking issue with what I'm saying, uh, that's totally cool. Like, I'm not, I'm not again... In fact, I, I welcome any legal opinions from people who are out there. I mean, if you want to go to the show notes and add your comment on whether you think I'm out to lunch uh, or whether you have an opinion on it, you know, head on over there. Just drop your comments there. Again, craftchalk.com forward slash BOF72 and, um, and give us, give us your, your thoughts. Um, I'm just going to see if there's anything here worth... No, that, that, that's it. That's that's the 60-page judgment right there. So I'm going to do a little summation here. Uh, I think you, you've, you've gotten sort of the gist of where I stand on the matter. I think you hopefully understand. I hope I haven't overly complicated things or turned this into a, um, you know, too, too big of a pretzel. But, you know, basically when I read this, I was upset. I was upset because I felt that Garrettson should be able to 
to argue uh, her copyright claim. Not that I necessarily think that her copyright claim is valid, but because I believe that there, personally, me reading this, I believe that there should be a legal interpretation that there was uh, a, uh, a unity of interest, for lack of a better word, between Warner Brothers and New Line slash Katya. So... Uh, it, it upsets me that she hasn't had that opportunity to argue that. Um, I hope that her lawyers file a Second Amendment, which I'm sure that they will. Uh, and I hope that she gets her day in court to, 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 to fight the claim. Again, not because I think she should win, but because I think that there is an issue here. And it's a legal issue. Uh, and it's one that is making you know lawyers very, very, very wealthy here. But... I'm looking at a 60-page judgment here, guys, and it's basically suggesting that if you can throw enough spaghetti at the corporate structure, you can make it seem like you can enter into a contract with somebody and then go have, you know, company over here on the right go produce it and that, hey, there's no legal relationship, so therefore we don't have to uphold your contract. Just That just seems unfair. It just seems crazy to me, but it's the law and it's the way it's the way it works. And that's why these guys get paid a lot of money. Um, you know, I, 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 I bet this stuff wasn't, you know, wasn't done. I mean, if I, if I have to take a guess, I mean, I, I'm going to give you my opinion here for, for what it's worth. This is, this is what I think happened, okay? Um, I believe Tess wrote a book. I believe, oh, of course she wrote a book. I believe Tess wrote a book. I believe she wrote supporting documentation or, or, or subsequent screenplay, quote-unquote, materials to go along with the development of that book. I believe she submitted that uh, to Katya and her management company, and I believe that that formed part of the underlying rights of a property. I also believe that she, in those underlying rights, did uh, increase the scope of the underlying rights of the novel to include things like a female floating in space and a debris hitting a space station. I do not believe that the book itself is similar enough to the movie. I do believe that some of the expansive ideas that she probably brought to the project as part of the development process is fairly similar to the movie. All that being said, though, does that mean that she actually has a copyright claim? And now you get into some really tricky waters here, people, because, you know, there's an idea, right? There's an idea that a woman floating in space all by herself is an interesting concept. I believe that at some point, some executive probably sat down with the Korans, um, or the Korans knew about this book. I'm sure there was talk in the back corridors that, hey, this is a cool idea. Um, uh, I believe that that knowledge transferred over to the Korans at some time in some manner. I believe they knew about it. I just don't think it's possible for them not to have known about it. I also believe Warner Brothers knew about it. I believe Warner Brothers knew about this contract. I believe that they knew about the development history of the contract. This is, and again, this is just all my beliefs from everything that I've been able to read here. Uh, legally, I've got no basis for what I'm saying, but I'm just giving it to you straight. This is what I believe. Um, so I believe that there was a jumping off point of an idea, a kernel of an idea. In point of fact, I actually don't believe that there's a copyright, an actual copyright claim. I believe that the script that was written by the, by the Korans was wholly original to them. 
Um, I don't even know if they... I'm gathering they probably didn't even read the book and or the subsequent literary materials that were written as an extension by Tess Garrickson. Why would they? Um, I just believe that somebody somewhere, you know, in a a, a development meeting uh, said to them, oh, we've got this property. It's about, you know, this space and this woman and floating and all that kind of stuff. And, and, uh, you know, you should look at it. And then, you know, maybe somewhere down the line, they said, you know what? I, I I don't I don't I don't want to make that movie, but I want to go make this movie. I want to make a movie just about this woman floating in space, uh, you know, with George Clooney. <laughs> and um, although it wasn't George Clooney at the time, but still, um, it was I, there was probably a kernel of an idea, a seed of an idea that sparked the creative process for the Quarons. And I believe that those two things, her book and Quoron's eventual adaptation, not adaptation, I, I should take that word back, eventual creation of a motion picture, there's probably some overlap somewhere. Um, it's hard to believe that, that overlap never happened, that these were two completely independent ideas, just given the nature of the corporate relationships here that were happening between the two. So, but is there a copyright, uh, is there a copyright claim? I don't believe so. Because in order to prove copyright, you you can't copyright an idea. You can only copyright the execution of that idea. And I believe the execution of the idea of somebody floating in space was wholly original to the Korans. And I believe that that judgment would be held up in a a court of law. Um, And and that's been proven time and time again. And you see it in Hollywood all the time. I mean, come on. How many times do you see rocks hitting, you know, asteroids hitting the Earth? Two movies, same idea. The execution of the idea is different. That's what's important here uh, when it comes to the side of, of, of copyright claim. But uh, again, I've gone on a little bit of a tangent, but I just thought it would be important for me to at least express to you what I believe may have allegedly, purportedly, possibly happened. Maybe. Uh, and I also wanted to express uh, why I think the uh, why I think there's actually no copyright infringement. Uh, and I also wanted to, to express how infuriated I am uh, that the courts uh, did not side on Tess Garrison's side um, for this part of the judgment. Um, again, I, you know, is is a copyright claim you know frivolous in and of itself? Maybe, maybe not. It's not really not for me to say. Um, but should she be allowed to have her day in court and argue it? Yeah, she should. She should. Um, and, uh, and I believe that there's a lot of corporate maneuvering here and a lot of boys there. I mean, if, you, if you're interested in this stuff and you want to read the court judgment, just, just read it because you'll just kind of, I don't know, fall backwards at your desk uh, thinking, wow, how did, they, how did they get away with this? It's like, it's like the greatest magic trick the devil ever pulled. <laughs> Anyways... Um, that's it for this podcast. Uh, I haven't done, again, a lot of these in a while, and so I hope you liked it. Um, I can try and get better at it if you like. We can, we, we can try and do more of the, the, this kind of examination uh, of issues uh, on other topics if that's something that you are digging. So um, send us a note. Uh, drop us a line uh, at Twitter. I mean, that would probably be the best thing to do. If, if uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts about it. So please, at Craft Truck. Uh, just send us a note. Let it, let us know what you think, um, and we'll you know hope, have a conversation there. Hopefully, you can always um, send us a comment. Uh, send us send us the wrong. You can always 
leave us a comment on iTunes. That is uh, the most appreciated place uh, for comments and stars and ratings because it really helps, you know, share this podcast with other people. So if this is something that you're digging um, and you want it, you want to hear more of it, uh, I definitely would uh, ask that when you're over to iTunes, just drop us a couple stars there or, and. Uh, and a comment. And uh, again, we'd love to hear from you. So I've had a lot of fun here today. I've, I've, I've really, I've really enjoyed going through this. Um, again, I apologize if it was a little, you know, circuitous in the beginning, but I think we found our rhythm there. Uh, and I think you've got at least the basis for more copyright knowledge as a result of us having taken the time here today to do that. So um, have a great week, everybody. We'll, we'll see you next week. And uh, thanks. Uh, thanks for checking out and listening to the business of film. Take care.